Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday, August 31 and on this morning's briefing, the second of a two-part interview Tom Tilly and I did with a woman called Alison Pennington. She is the young Aussie economist who grew up in poverty and in this second part she shares her unique perspective on how to lessen that gap between the haves and the have-nots in this country. As well as creating more work for people who want it, I would lift income support payments to a point where people can live dignified above poverty existences. And there's absolutely no reason our government can't do that. And if you haven't already, jump on Twitter and check out Alison Pennington's account. She has a really amazing stream there where she talks in quite a lot of detail about growing up and her experience of poverty and her ideas for reshaping Australia into the future. All right, a big hello to Annika, who's here with the headlines. Annika, as a Victorian, you must be so happy that this is the last day of winter. It is freezing down here. Actually, it's not freezing. It is just windy and a little bit rainy, which is pretty typical of Melbourne in August. But yes, <laughs> Isn't that every day? finally <laughs> getting out of winter. I know. And it's going to be hot later in the week. So something to look forward to in lockdown for everybody. Oh, and you need everything you can get at the moment. <laughs> The United States will officially cease all military operations in Afghanistan today, drawing to an end the nation's longest war. Now, this conflict began in relation to the September 11 attacks. That was back in 2001. As of today, more than 122,000, including 5,400 Americans, have been evacuated from Afghanistan. U.S. military troops have shown tremendous bravery and compassion as they put themselves in harm's way uh, to evacuate as many American citizens and Afghans as possible during this operation. That's uh, Pentagon spokesperson Major General Hank Taylor talking to media overnight. So five rockets have been fired into that airport compound overnight. However, there were no reports of fatalities or airport damage from last night's attacks. The Pentagon says it expects Kabul Airport to continue to be a target for terror groups, including ISIS-K, which targeted the facility last Friday, killing more than 180 people, including 13 US troops. All right, a bit of a grim warning on the calendar for New South Wales residents who have been told to prepare for October to be the worst month in terms of COVID cases. Our hospital system is under pressure. Will we need to do things differently? Of course we will. Will we need to manage things differently? We're in the middle of a pandemic, of course. But will we cope? Of course we will. That's the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian who said health authorities expect October to be the busiest month for hospitalisations as the state's vaccination drive continues. Now, New South Wales recorded 1,290 new cases yesterday and four more deaths. And also an Indigenous man in his 50s died at Dubbo Hospital. Uh, Annika, it's believed to be the first death of an Aboriginal Australian due to the virus since the pandemic began in March last year. It was also the first death in regional New South Wales. So a, a very sad statistic there. Terrible news. And Australia reached another grim milestone yesterday, recording more than 1,000 COVID-related deaths. The four deaths in New South Wales took the toll to 1,003. 
Still on COVID news, a new study has found Australians are worried more about the pandemic's toll on jobs and mental health than any surge in cases of COVID-19. Now, these are news limited figures and they show that more than half of the parents of school-aged children fear classroom closures will harm their kids' education in the long term, including two-thirds in Victoria. I guess that's the, the hardest hit there. Melbourne students have spent nearly eight months now in homeschooling since the start of the pandemic. It's incredible, isn't it? 44% of the 3,000 Australians surveyed for this report said their own emotional well-being or that of their families has suffered in the past three months. Most Australians worry less about catching COVID than losing their jobs, with business closures and work losses topping the list of concerns as the financial cost of the lockdown hits home. Let's go to the US now, where Hurricane Ida continues to ease as it makes its way across the US state of Louisiana. Local authorities say they expect the death toll to climb considerably. The storm hit the coast in the Gulf of Mexico yesterday, our time, as a Category 4 hurricane. We've got a million people in Louisiana without power. And uh, for a time, Ida caused the Mississippi River to literally change its direction. And some folks are still dealing with the storm surge and flash flooding. And there are roads that are impassable due to debris and down power lines. And we need people to continue to shelter in place if it's safe for them to do so. Wow, what a picture the US President Joe Biden paints there, talking about the Mississippi River changing direction. The city of New Orleans was worst hit with the entire city now without power. Another gold rush day of competition for the Australian Paralympic team. The men's 4 by 100 freestyle relay team has taken out gold in the pool, breaking a world record. He's got five minutes left to swim. He has been loyal and It's a world record. That audio there is thanks to Seven. And our table tennis team has broken their 37-year-old gold medal drought. 37 years is a long time to go without a gold medal, particularly if you are working at that every single day. Australia is also currently sitting at seventh place now, which is pretty fantastic. So we're still in the top 10 with a total of 42 medals. So yesterday we brought you the first part of a chat with economist Alison Pennington. She works at the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work. She's got the most fascinating story of growing up in extreme poverty. In fact, it wasn't even that long ago for her, six years ago. Here is one of the key moments from that incredible chat. Like I've spent my weekends going to SNFL, local footy oval and collecting cans. That was like a, a great activity for me because I might make $2 mm. and that was more than the 20 cents that I would get passed on for pocket money every now and then. Yeah, picking up cans around the local footy fields in Adelaide, you don't hear many stories of economists growing up poor, no. which is why this one's so interesting. So we're about to hear some of her policy ideas that I guess are informed by that reality alongside the work she's done as an economist. You're quite vocal on Twitter. You've, I guess, told your story on that particular platform and on a, on a couple of others in the media as well. Was there a moment in time where you just thought that you wanted to speak your truth and, and share where you've come from in order to level that playing field? And did you hide it before that point? 
Yes. I, I mean, you have to hide it to survive. And I think for the first couple of years of being in full-time secure work, you know, you keep your head down because you don't want to be on your ass again. And the worst case scenarios, you're always envisaging them. You're always planning for them, emotionally experiencing it because that's what it is to be at the bottom is often the worst thing that can happen does. And so you have to prepare and protect yourself. It's only recently that I've actually come to some conclusion that I'm probably going to be employed from here on out. And mm. that would be hilarious to a lot of people who would say, Alison, like, you're, you're getting so many runs on the board, your feet are firmly planted. But that worst case scenario planning is is always there. I like to represent and support people around me. Like that kind of collectivist thinking is really important to me. So for me, I guess what pulls me out of my shell and forces me to tell my story is because I look around me and if I see people suffering, then I have to speak to it. It's not even a choice. I feel like a necessity. I can't sleep at night if I'm not true to that. I'm not honest. In order to do that well, I needed to make sure that I wasn't going to be sacked and that mm. I had an income and I had some way to keep paying my bills because you can't talk, you can't reach platforms like this and talk to you guys. If I'm, you know, having to find an extra bit of work to pay the rent or, you know, so I guess the I've always felt a need to speak the truth. It's been a journey of, you know, crippling anxiety and shyness from a young age and as a teenager and through my early 20s. And, yeah, I'm at this point now because I feel a necessity to incorporate my experiences or, you know, at least I can't unsee what I've seen. So I've got to be true to how I frame economic problems. And I do that with a very, you know, it's human-centred. I'm, I'm unapologetic about talking about the economy as though talking about what it is, which is the combination of the efforts of human beings and productively working, not just paid work, but lots of unpaid work that gets done too. And the most fundamental lens in how an economy functions, whether it's performing well, is if it's meeting human need. And it's, mm. I think it's quite clear it's not at this point in time. Okay. So you've said that understanding real poverty can help us make better policy decisions. What do you want to change? What do you think are the solutions that could help lift people up? Like gone are the days of the full-time permanent traditional job, you know, where you've got access to sick leave and paid leave, where your life is more than just flogging your guts on the job. Those were, I think Australians still have an understanding that that was the, the type of a good job. That's what a good job is. But that type of work is now only 50% of all work, right? The other 50% now is some form of precarity. That's where we get lots of underemployment and people out of work. The reason why we have so many people who are hungry for jobs and why there aren't jobs being created is because government in the last few decades has followed this, what in political science they call neoliberalism, but it's it's an ethos of reducing government spending and putting more control of the economy into the hands of private interests rather than, for instance, expanding welfare payments, expanding the public sector or in the pandemic, for instance, making the Medicare system bigger, putting more people into public sector jobs. These are all the things I think we need a fundamental overhaul really of like the current ethos of how we do economic policy. I think we need a massive reform of our income supports payments, that the means testing. You see this word in the media um, to describe how our system is, is organised, but what it looks like is a profound indignity of forcing very poor people to jump through lots of hoops to supposedly prove their worthiness of being able to work. But of course, there's no jobs on the other side of that. So as well as creating more work for people who want it, I would um, lift income support payments 
to a point where people can live dignified above poverty existences. And there's absolutely no reason our government can't do that. Other governments in the world do it. We are using the welfare benefit system to, it's been weaponised to basically force people into lower wage, crappier jobs. So I would just lift the floors up on everything. And then, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So like Medicare is one of the strongest institutions, I think, in Australia in terms of people's respect and support for public healthcare. And it's been crying out for more funding. I think if we're talking about living with the virus now, for those you know, multiple eliminated states, their health systems are not going to cope. As a South Australian, we've had, I know we've had a ramping crisis with AMBOs being stuck outside the doors of, of hospitals for months. This is before COVID hits them. So I would be looking at expanding, actually expanding our public health care system to include things like dental care and mental health. Public education, big fan of that because it gave me everything I've got. So I will always sing the praises of that wonderful institution, I would absolutely be expanding public education and, and um, Australia's got some of the most unequal you know, systems in that regard. Housing, oh, like I could just keep going, guys. Like we need, <laughs> we need a national housing construction program. All of those solutions involve spending lots more government money. Do you have any solutions about paying for it or dealing with the intergenerational debt that would come from that? Yeah, this concept of intergenerational debt I think is misunderstood if you're in a profound crisis, of which, by the way, our public debt to GDP levels are pretty low in historic standards, even compared to other countries now, if you want to pay down debt, you have to grow the pie. So you have to invest and get people working, get businesses earning, get revenues paid. Like that's how you will pay down debt. You've got to make the pie bigger. And the problem is we've got a low growth economy, but a high profit one. So these stage three tax cuts, an example of the kinds of stuff that we are useless, that don't have any economic value, that's worth $16.9 billion every year. That's just for the highest, the stage three income tax cuts. So, I mean, I would wind back those things. I would tax, lift the corporate tax rate, as Australia's is very low. As well as that redistribution, it's about investing, investing in people, investing in new production, we can invest in new industries, and debt becomes smaller as our economy becomes bigger and people are thriving. And so, yeah, I think that's a, a bit of a misunderstood concept around debt, public debt, and, and how it actually functions, yeah. Alison, I'm curious to know, did the other members of your family, your other siblings, have they managed to lift themselves out of poverty as well? Uh, it is a, a source of profound pride and joy for me that you know, I could look across to my three brothers and see them all in work and see them all you know, happy and, you know, they've got passion in their lives and they're driven and and I, I've got that kind of a motherly <laughs> instinct for them because my dad, um, when he left us, I played a strong caring role for my, especially for my little brother, so he's like a son, but he's the best of us because he's a musician and he's living in New York and mm. he's a brilliant jazz guitarist and I think that's the sign of a family that's succeeded, I guess, that's come from the bottom is if one of yours is able to engage in those creative pursuits because mm. we're all musicians, right? We all play music, but none of us got to a point to do, be able to do that because we were working so much. And yeah, the, the, the top three of us were, we were all working from 15 and paying board and helping so that he could spread his wings. And yeah, so I'm proud of what we've done, but I don't think it's a normal experience for people like us. Mm. Our families and our communities are still in the same position, still stagnant, still without work, 
still with mental health issues, drug and alcohol problems. So I'd like to say I'm really proud of them and proud of us, but it's not transferable to those around us, I think. That's Alison Pennington. She's a senior economist at the Australia Institute of Progressive Think Tank. What an amazing story and so well told. Yeah, incredible. And you can definitely see, you know, in the future, her perhaps penning a memoir about this. It's something I definitely want to read. I think we've all, we can all relate to that in some way. Maybe not growing up poor, but definitely being an outsider in mm. some way and the shame of that and mm. the moment that you, I guess, feel comfortable enough in your own skin mm. to share your truth with someone. Yeah, that was a really interesting part of it that she hid it because she didn't want to damage her reputation or, you know, take any risks, basically. You have to be really risk adverse, particularly with your career. But now that she's feeling more solid, she's got a solid job, she's building a bit of a profile in, in the public arena as well. She's sharing her story and I think it will, will help so many people. Like this relates to so many things going on in society at the moment, you know. Yeah. Some people respond to poverty very differently. You know, a lot of people in working class America turned to Donald Trump as their solution, you know. They felt alienated by the job market, the economic system, which was rigged to the rich. So people mm. respond to it so differently and it's such a driving force in so many of our political debates. So tomorrow on The Briefing, we look at an Aussie cultural icon and an age-old debate which is raising its head again. Listener.